0: Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker. On this episode, I talk with Robin Hansen. Robin is an economist at George Mason University, but even though Robin is an economist by title, he's published in a wide number of fields ranging from psychology to astrophysics. On this episode, we talk about Robin's theory of grabby aliens. This is a new model that attempts to explain whether there are aliens in the universe and where they might be. We discuss how the model works and what it might tell us about the future of humanity. Here is Robin Hansen. Robin, thanks for being with us. Nice to see you again. Fantastic. All right. Let's talk a bit about aliens. And I think the first question we should cover here is... Why? Why do you care about aliens? Why have you published paper on on papers on aliens? Um, isn't this simply too far out to to try to research?
1: My general intellectual strategy has been look for important neglected questions where I can find some original angle where I could uh, do something new other people hadn't done. So the topic of aliens just seems obviously important. <laughs> Uh, and when I first started reading about it, I had no particular expectation that I could have any original contribution because, of course, it was of such interest to so many people, how could I?
0: <laughs>
1: but um, what I've you know learned is that, in fact, academia clumps quite badly and it just neglects a lot of big, important things. And so I've often had substantial success just finding a thing that seems obviously big and important that academics tend to shy away from.
0: And just diving in. Maybe those topics that seem obviously important to you do not seem obviously important to other academics. Maybe that's the most straightforward uh, explanation there.
1: I don't think so. That is, I think if you just ask ordinary people what topics are important, there is an awful lot of agreement. (laughs) And I tend to agree with sort of, you know, ordinary people's rough assessment of things. And certainly here, we're just talking about the largest. History across space and time. We're just talking about like the overall cosmology, basically. So, clearly, a lot of people think cosmology is important. Where did the universe come from? Where is it going? And this is just a big thing that matters for cosmology. If the universe will fill up with advanced aliens, then the universe from then on will be determined by them, not by,
0: you know, dead matter star evolution processes. Yeah. So, we often imagine that we can look into the very far future of the universe and Predicts how galaxies will move and predicts how stars will spread apart and so on. But maybe this ignores the the possibility of aliens doing engineering on enormous scale and moving uh, stuff around in the universe that actually changes things on an on such a big uh, kind of scale level. I think a lot of people just sort of have a mental block about our future in
1: terms of its big technological potential. (laughs) That is, it just scares them, or it seems just like just too much, or not like not something they should do. In fact, many people sort of invoke a simple methodological principle of it's impossible to predict the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then they they just declare that the future is off limits because it's impossible to say anything about, and then they go on with imagining nothing will happen in the future because uh, that's the simplest thing they think. So just assume the future is like the past and make and take into account nothing you know about what's happening lately and
0: how we're changing things. Could this be kind of a heuristic that people have developed because it's just so damn hard to predict what's happening, what will happen in the future? And so it's, it's better in some cases not to try. And, and maybe that translate into, in, translates into a thought that we can't predict the future at all.
1: I don't buy that so much, but I, mean, I do think that in fact, there's often a planning you know, fallacy or that people often over plan. And instead of planning, they should just prepare to adapt. And that's in fact, a reasonable attitude toward many kinds of over planning in our world. So for example, if you look at like billion dollar projects in the world, they just tend to go very badly. Most billion dollar projects are just done way over budget, way over time, don't work that well. And apparently people just delude themselves into thinking they're able to do billion dollar projects. And often it's, you know, some sort of political or organizational pride thing where they're going to make a name for themselves and um, be the toast of the world because they do this big grand project and it's just hard to do long projects. So I certainly think there's a reasonable place for caution there, but I don't think that means you should
0: go all the way toward we ha- have have no idea what might happen in the future. Yeah, and aliens really <laughs> Thinking about aliens is really one of the biggest things we could think about. Maybe uh, highly advanced AI is up there, but I can't really think of of anything other uh, in that category. Like, if if aliens could really, really, if they exist, uh, affect our future and the future of the universe. So it's a massive topic to think about. It's not just the future,
1: it's also the past. That is, you just look out into all of space-time, one of the biggest things that might make a difference out there in space-time is advanced aliens. I mean, you know, they can just make, they can just change a lot. So it's just, if you're interested at all on large scales of space-time, it's just an obvious question that has to
0: occur to you. All right, let's get into the, the meat of your theory here. Uh, you have two types of alien civilizations, loud uh, civilizations and quiet civilizations. What, what's the difference there? Well, the difference is, we ought to be able to see the loud ones and hear them.
1: So we look out in the universe and we don't see very much. And that doesn't say much about the quiet ones. That is the quiet ones that would be small and quiet and not last very long and not do very much. Are you know, we have a limited ability to see and hear. So our limited ability to see and hear is really quite consistent with a wide range of quiet aliens. But big, loud aliens, that we might be able to see. So it makes sense to at least take our basic data that we have right now of what we can see and what we can't see and confront that with the theory of loud aliens. That is, we should be able to take a space of possible theories of loud aliens and eliminate some of the
0: theories from consideration by comparing what we see with what those theories would predict. So a quiet civilization would be a civilization like humanity is now. So... It's not that, that we aren't doing anything, but we're not uh, changing our solar system or our galaxy in a way that's visible from very, very far away. Right. The, I mean, the motive is that we do think it's plausible that in our
1: future, we might become very loud. That is, not only might we, say, change the sun in terms of its color spectrum a little bit, we might take apart the sun. <laughs> we might go to the nearest thousand suns and take them all apart we might go to the entire galaxy and take it apart and rearrange it and not just change the color spectrum a tiny bit, but change where the light comes from or whether it's light or where all the mass sits and what it's doing. We have some pretty ambitious plans for the future. (laughs) Now, they don't happen immediately. That is, it might take 10 million years to achieve these visions, but 10 million years is a tiny time on cosmological scales. It makes almost no difference. So if you ask what might we do in 10 million years we think there's at least a small chance we could do some really big things and then we can focus attention on aliens who might be doing those really big things why would some alien civilizations be quiet well we are quiet now and so they might not make the transition to loud um obviously one way they might just die (laughs) or they might freeze themselves into some limited form that uh, can't grow or refuses to grow. Um, Or they might choose not to expand. So I actually think uh, that'll be the biggest choice our descendants will probably make is to decide whether or not to allow themselves to expand out into the universe. Because once you think about it, there's a lot of downsides to that. Such as? Well, in the last century or so, we have been becoming together as a world community in many ways and amazed that we weren't for the previous 10,000 years as 4,000 years ago, we most lived in small forager groups of maybe 30 people. And in those small groups, we didn't actually fight that much. We didn't do wars. We had some maybe sexual jealousy, violence, but uh, mostly we decided things together. We sat around the campfire and made key decisions about who to punish for what or when to move to another place. We were mostly on friendly terms with our natives. And in the last 10,000 years, we lost that. We moved into a world where we have wars with each other and we're competing and fighting across the globe. But in the last century, we've been slowly drifting back more toward a world community where world elites, at least, talk around the world. And when a big thing like COVID happens, they all talk
0: together about what to do and they agree then what to do and then they all do it, pretty much. So humanity has been moving closer together. and, And so you're... Your worry here would be that if we spread into the universe, we would once again move further apart and become less able to communicate. We have been enjoying the fact
1: that instead of competing via war and fierce business competition, we have agreed at a global level how to limit war, we've agreed on how to regulate many kinds of business and other activities. and. We like this world where we all decide together on major things, and we'll slowly over the next centuries even have more world governance, where we impose rules more on everyone to follow the rules. And one of the things that we like about this is that we will prevent out-of-control evolution of our descendants. That is, whenever people have talked about genetic engineering or other kinds of AI, even engineering, many people don't like these images, they are scared of them, and they think they're dangerous, and they want to have some sort of collective control over these things to to limit and manage how our descendants might become different from us. And that's all possible within a solar system, say, that uh, is, you know, advanced and uh, full of technology and people. But even a solar system is close enough together that if one part of it wants to violate the rules, other parts of it can smash them (laughs) and make them follow the rules. Uh, But once we allow any descendants to leave the solar system and start creating colonies on other stars and many thousands of stars, at that point, it's no longer possible to have a civilization-wide governance, a civilization-wide conversation where we agree together on what to do and then make us all do it. And it's not possible then to prevent... Our descendants evolving to become strange things—not only strange things that violate our norms, but that come back here to contest for control with us over this place. That's a consequence
0: of allowing interstellar colonization. So this this would push us to stay quiet as a civilization, and, and it may have pushed alien civilizations to stay quiet. I'm thinking that when we've when scientists have st- uh, speculated about the existence of aliens traditionally. And maybe they've assumed that aliens are quiet, where they've assumed that, well, we have no evidence, we, 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 are, we, we can't see any, any aliens, so we have to go back to uh, reasoning from, from first principles. Say. And they've been using uh, what's called the Drake Equation uh, to, to do this, which is taking thinking about uh, basically proportions of planets that could be habitable and then getting s- Smaller and smaller percentages uh, of planets that could that could house aliens, and then thinking thinking in, in in terms of this equation about how many aliens there would be, do you think we 've traditionally assumed that aliens would be quiet I think that's been
1: a dominant assumption in the world now a long time ago, some people in this space in astrophysics reasoning about agents did consider the possibility that aliens would expand enormously and have an enormous impact on the universe. And I think a lot of people just were repelled by that vision. <laughs> and it sort of conflicted with their politics even. And a lot of people have sort of expressed the axiom that advanced aliens would have to be peaceful and and not aggressive because otherwise they would have destroyed themselves. And so the vision that they had for our future is the vision that they insisted would be the only feasible vision for aliens. And that would be a a way that they could tell other people today that we should follow their vision because otherwise we will die. (laughs) And so they had a political lesson about that. They were saying, look, the only way to be a long lasting, you know, successful alien civilization is to become peaceful and non-aggressive and environmentally ecologically aware, et cetera. And they wanted that message (laughs) to go out to the world here today that, that's what we should become, and that message would be affirmed by their claim that no aliens ever do otherwise. Because if
0: they do otherwise, they die. So, thinking about loud aliens, expansive alien civil, civil alien civilizations that expand and so on was maybe this line of thinking was rejected on irrational grounds. Well, political grounds. Political grounds. Okay, but maybe the distinction there is <laughs> is not always perfectly clear. <laughs> They had an
1: agenda, a story they wanted to tell.
0: And yeah, yeah. But you can see how that
1: could animate our descendants to choose not to allow expansion.
0: Yeah. All right. But what you've been theorizing about is basically loud aliens. So um, let's dig into the moving parts of, of your model here. You have a, uh, You call it grabby aliens. And this is just to say that grabby aliens expand into the universe and they grab more and more. Uh, more, bigger and bigger regions of the universe. So one, one thing you, you claim is that loud aliens, they will make changes, planet-sized changes to, to their regions, and they will expand fast. So why would we expect uh, alien civilizations to, exp- to expand fast?
1: Well, our model has three parameters,
0: so it's not a very
1: complicated model. Uh, there's two parameters of when they appear in space and time. So we assume they appear at random places on the, on the grand scale of things and that they appear in time according to a power law, which has a constant and a power in it. The constant, you know, just says an overall rate and the power is in terms of a set of hard steps that have to be achieved in order to uh, reach an advanced level like ours. And then they expand at some speed. So the, the key assumption is just they, they all expand at roughly the same speed presumably some roughly maximum feasible speed, But we don't actually assume it's a fast speed. We, we conclude it's a fast speed from our data. Ah. So the space of models says it could be a slow speed. And then our data says, no,
0: it can't be a slow speed. It must be a fast speed. Maybe you could explain why it must be a fast speed based on the data. So again, we have these three parameters. And
1: the key idea is that each of the three parameters is going to be fit to data. So... Our current date, we're going to assume, is a random sample from the dates at which advanced aliens appear because we may not become loud, but if we do, it'll be in the next 10 million years. So that means at our current date of 14 million years since the Big Bang, this is a random sample from the date at which such alien species appear. That's our first datum, is our current date. Our second datum is... The history of life on Earth, which gives us a clue to how many hard steps happened in the history of life on Earth, roughly six. And therefore, the time appearance function has a power of six.
0: Things appear more and more rapidly as the sixth power of time. What, what are these hard steps? What, are, what is an example of a hard steps? Is it the evolution of life on Earth or multicellular organisms, something like this?
1: So, the idea is that life has to go through a sequence of stages where, in each stage, it's searching for the next stage. It's, it, there's a vast space of possibilities it's searching in to find the key arrangement that will allow the next stage. And that we don't really know what these stages are. We have a number of candidates for them, say photosynthesis, multicellularity, eukaryotes, sexual selection, et cetera. But what we do see is that life. Appeared on Earth at a certain date. And we can then consider the very first step as the has happening before that date. And then we know that we've appeared at a certain date right now before life on Earth will no longer be possible. And the simple theory of statistics says that these two durations are samples from the same distribution of duration of step sizes. So the first One took roughly 400 million years, and now we have roughly a billion years remaining. And those two numbers are samples from the typical step duration size. And that's what lets us say there's probably roughly six steps, you know, three to nine or something like that, steps that happened during the history of Earth so far. And so we don't need to know which steps they were. (laughs) What we mainly need to know is how many of them there are. And we can get that from that first duration and this last
0: duration. And then, then, we think that, then we think that alien civilizations will have to go through the same number of steps in order to uh, reach a level in which they can expand into the universe. Right, because if there were different paths of evolution that had
1: different numbers of steps, the one with the smallest number of steps would be the overwhelmingly more likely thing to happen. So the universe would mainly be filled with things that use the smallest number of feasible steps. So that's why we would assume that our number of steps is the smallest feasible.
0: Okay, and let's try to get back to this question of why alien civilizations would expand fast. Right, so the third parameter is the speed of expansion.
1: So now we can take the other two parameters and we can do stochastic simulations of this model, where we model the universe assuming the number of steps we have and the constant we have from our date. And then we can model different speeds of expansion and see what they would imply about the universe. So if we assume that we are a random sample from the origin of an advanced civilization date, we can ask at a random time when an advanced civilization appears in these models, how many other civilizations can it see? We can just use the model and simulate it and calculate that. And what we find is that when they expand slowly at the ran- at an origin time of when typical civilization appears it can see many other alien civilizations in the sky and what these are is enormous spheres in the sky that much larger than the full moon where within that sphere everything is substantially changed that is you're looking at a sphere of alien colonization maybe billions of light years across in which for billions of years they have been changing the stuff and our key prediction is they would have made it look different somehow Exactly how we don't know, but it seems pretty likely that it would look different. Just like on Earth today, when there's a forest or uh, a savanna, it looks different than empty rock. Wheat in a city looks different than an empty savanna.
0: That is, you know, life and civilization changes things. But so, so your reasoning is that if civilizations, alien civilizations, expanded slowly, then we would see them.
1: Right. Therefore, they they can't be expanding slowly, and we can calculate how fast they would need to be expanding, such that you know we most likely wouldn't see them in the sky, and that's maybe roughly half the speed of light. So if they're go- expanding half the speed
0: of light, then we don't expect to see them in the sky. And is there some kind of uh, anthropic reasoning involved here when we when we're thinking about ourselves as observers? So we're thinking about we we couldn't exist in a universe in which alien civilizations ha- had spread out and basically expanded to fill all regions and so yeah could you could you explain uh, whether there's some anthropic reasoning involved here so i mean if you could give a
1: link in this podcast to our grabby aliens website where we have a simulation that you can watch of how a Gravy alien civilization scenario plays out
0: yeah i've watched that it's it's incredibly interesting uh, to to see
1: the key observation is that at a random time when one civilization is arriving Basically, a lot of the rest of the universe is already full of alien civilizations. And so, you know, at the typical average time, then basically half of the universe is full of aliens. That is half of the volume of the universe at that moment is, you know, occupied by old and advanced alien civilizations. And so that prediction seems to be at odds with our looking out in the universe and seeing nothing, nothing at all, zero, empty. But there's a selection effect. That is, if there were an alien civilization in our view, it would be here now instead of us. (laughs) And then it would have precluded us from being here, at least in a situation where we would see an empty universe. So, I mean, the simplest assumption is alien civilizations just prevent the evolution of other intelligences within the spheres of their control. They might allow some previous existing evolving planet to stay isolated, perhaps, but then it would be within a sphere of control of uh, other, you know, of of an advanced civilization nearby. And that's not what we see. So we can definitely conclude we are not in the middle of a sphere (laughs) of an advanced civilization. And therefore, um, they would be here now instead of us if we could see them. (laughs) And so that's the main reason we don't see them. The universe we see is empty because we are arriving right now. And the only way we could be arriving right now is if our planet and solar system and near space were just left empty, not being changed by an advanced civilization, but waiting for some advanced civilization to
0: appear. One of the conclusions you arrive at is that humanity has arrived very early in the history of the universe. Maybe you could give us some some dates here because it's... What is it? Thirteen point seven year uh, billion years since the Big Big Bang, and how how long do we expect the universe to exist for? So um, one theory you might say is no, no, no,
1: there are no other aliens in the universe. We are the only ones, and it's all completely empty, and that's the simple explanation for why we don't see anyone. And we say no, that's not quite right. <laughs> if you if the universe were completely empty and would just wait for us to appear as long as it took, then we should expect to appear much later than we did. So the peak of star formation was about 4 billion years after the beginning of the universe. And then, you know, the peak of habitable star formation was perhaps three times later or something because at the very beginning of the universe, there were all these young stars exploding and that was pretty harsh for nearby life. Uh, but Over time, the rate at which these explosions happened was declining. And so, um, you know, there are all, are all these planets that formed about 4 billion years after the universe started. And then they have an enormous distribution of lifetimes. And the average star, and therefore the average planet around it, will last for 5 trillion years. And some of them will last for hundreds of trillions of years. The average will last for five trillion. We're on an unusually short-lived star, a short-lived planet, therefore, which so far has only lasted five billion years and only has another one billion years left of habitability on our planet. So we are very early in this history of the universe. Now, you might say, well, that's because only stars like us can support life And that just doesn't seem right to us. That is, seems that there must be just a wide range of different paths by which life could appear. And in particular, that ocean worlds, worlds full of water, are a reasonable candidate for places where life could appear. And that even though small stars have some problems in terms of, say, tidal locking and flares, those really aren't problems for ocean worlds. (laughs) And therefore, there are many stars with many planets who could, in fact, evolve life sometime in the next hundred trillion years. So this hard step model I talked about predicts that if life has to go through a bunch of hard steps that are all difficult to finally get to our level, the time at which that will happen, will, uh, the prediction is the, the probability of that happening goes as the, as time to the power of the number of hard steps, say six, and therefore, if you have a star that lasts a thousand times longer than our star, say five trillion versus five billion, then not only is there a thousand times as much time for life to appear on that longer-lived star, the chance of it appearing will be toward the end raised to the power of six, say, which means a thousand raised to the power of six, <laughs> i.e., ten to the eighteen. <laughs> that is, there's a 10 to the 18 larger chance that advanced like, like us would appear late on a much longer-lived star than it having appeared
0: on our planet, which is such a short-lived planet in such a short time. Can we say say anything about the probability of us having arrived this early in the universe by chance? Well, the, the story
1: here is that we made an assumption in this model that we were just analyzing. We were assuming the universe would sit and wait empty until we appeared. And that's the assumption we suggest is wrong <laughs> that is at the moment the universe is filling up with advanced aliens and in a few billion years it'll be awful at which point it'll be too late to show up so there was a deadline and the universe would not wait and for five trillion years for advanced life to appear and that's why we couldn't appear on a longer-lived star and planet five trillion years in the future we had to appear now before the deadline and that's why the reason you should believe there are aliens out there is the day on the clock. <laughs> that is, that's the evidence. You are really early and the plausible reason you are really early is that there was a deadline. And so that's why they're, you know they're out there. They're out there right now filling up the universe. You can't see them, but you know they're there
0: because of the day on the clock. I'm I'm not totally sure I'm following this. So. You, you, in, in the grabby aliens model that you've developed, uh, it must be compatible with us being alone in the universe. Like there must be some uh, probability uh, within that model that we are the only civilization. But if I understand it correctly, it's just very low. Um, but maybe you could you could go over, over again why it is that we couldn't just be alone, and this is the most straightforward explanation for. Um, for us not having discovered any, any alien civilizations. So this
1: relative chance of our appearing now versus late depends on two parameters that we show a graph of in our main paper. One of the parameters is the number of hard steps. And the other parameter is how long lives a star can host life. So if we assume that even the longest-lived stars, the planets around them can host life, and then life could wait to appear. Then that parameter is at is at its maximum, and that uh, the other parameter is how many hard steps. I said the history of life on Earth suggests roughly six. Uh, and if again, if it's you know a factor of you know a thousand times longer and six steps, then that's a factor of ten to the eighteen. So we are ten to the eighteen early, i.e. Only one in 10 to the 18 civilizations would appear earlier than us under those parameters. So, the way to explain our earliness without invoking our model of the universe is filling up with aliens would be to push those two parameters as far as they could go toward the you know, low end of the spectrum. That is, you could say, no, long lived stars just can't host life, it's just not possible. Only short-lived stars like ours can host life. That's just it. And then you could also say, and there really weren't very many hard steps. It looks like there were, but that was just a statistical fluke. Turned out there was only two steps or one step. And if, you could, if you're willing to make those assumptions, then you could say, and there, then we're not terribly early relative to expectations if you make
0: those assumptions. And then you, the universe is empty. We're the only ones. When you're thinking about when we have appeared in the universe, what? So are you just taking the, the current time from the from the Big Bang, or because you could also, you know, it's it's not entirely obvious how we date ourselves uh, here. Is it? Could we could we date ourselves from the first emergence of life? Then we are three and a half uh, billion years uh, earlier. Um, or how 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 do you think about uh, how to date humanity? as a well what we're doing is we're making a simple statistical model that predicts when advanced life would appear
1: so the model has a planet first has to appear a star has to have a planet so you have to have the kind of stars that would have planets and maybe not the first generation of stars don't uh, but you know you have a first generation of stars creates heavy elements and then the next generation of stars will have planets and those, that next generation of stars will have too many explosions going off nearby because they've got all these very short-lived stars that are lasting a short time and exploding. But those go away because they explode. <laughs> and then a little later, we've got a lot of stars around with not too many explosions and planets that can have life. And now we have the weight to when how long it takes for advanced life to appear. So we can calculate this distribution of which planets could host life, when they appeared and how long they last, and then we can a- say for each planet, how long does it take for advanced life to appear? I.e., what's the chance as a function of time on that planet? And we're just taking some integrals here and combining them, and that's what's giving us this distribution over time of when advanced life would appear if the universe would wait empty for it. And we have a, we we have simple models of when stars appear and when. The habitable stars appear and the distribution of how long they last. And we can just fold that into a simple mathematical model of when advanced life should appear in the history of the universe. And that's the thing we are using to compare to say that we're early relative to as a model of
0: when we should expect to appear. You mentioned earlier that if humanity expands into the universe, we will do so during the next 10, 10 million years. Why do you say that? Well, our evolution has been enormously rapid uh, in the last million years really and perhaps accelerating so yeah and not just perhaps definitely yeah, accelerating definitely accelerating
1: so so you know there's the history of life on earth can be summarized in terms of eras of increasingly accelerating growth you know there was the rise of say animal brains from say half a million year, half a billion years ago And animal brains were, say, doubling roughly every 30 million years. And then humans arrived with their especially large brain, which could support culture. And then we started doubling roughly every quarter million years, a factor of 120 faster. And then humans switched into a farming mode, which allowed the number of humans to double roughly every thousand years, a factor of 250 times faster. And then a few hundred years ago, the industrial revolution appeared, which has allowed the economy to double every 15 years, which is a factor of 60 faster. And so, you know, at the rate we've been growing lately, we would easily fill the entire observable universe in a few thousand years. And we know that's not going to happen. So clearly growth has to slow down, but still we are capable of very fast growth at the moment. So... It's just really hard to imagine. We, our growth would slow down so much that we couldn't achieve, say, spaceflight within
0: 10 million years. Do you worry that these modes of existence for life are arbitrary? Do you think that if you, ta- if you took 10,000 different uh, alien scientists and asked them to categorize modes of life uh, on Earth, would they come up with the same uh, modes that you just mentioned for me here? Well, the the key phenomena is going to be that if you have different parts of the
1: Earth that are in different sorts of modes, whichever part is in the mode that grows fastest will just come to dominate the rest. So there's a selection effect for finding the fastest growth modes possible. So on different planets and different civilizations, they may just have different kinds of modes, but they will all have that same selection effect. (laughs) They will all start out growing slow and then... Different parts of them will bounce around trying out different new modes. And if they ever find a new mode that just can grow much faster, that new mode will quickly take over and displace all the rest. And that's what we've seen so far. (laughs) That is, humans could grow faster than other animals or displacing the other animals. And then farming could grow faster than foraging and farming displaced foraging. And industry could grow faster than farming and industry is displaced farming. And then another mode may appear. My book, The Age of M, is on one possible theory uh, brain emulations. But the key idea is whatever
0: new mode ap- appears that could grow much faster than the existing mode, it will just quickly displace the existing mode. And when we're talking about growth rates, now we're talking about something objective, and it is no longer it's simply a subjective categorization of modes of life on Earth. Right, that it's about the rate at which its
1: physical power can grow, <laughs> its direct physical impact This. Energy, it can command the matter. It can command the things it can do. These things are just growing at these growth rates.
0: Robin, if humanity uh, manages not to destroy itself, and if we expand into the universe, when will we meet aliens? So as I said, we have a three-parameter model. We can fit each of the parameters to the data. The, the fit is rough, but you know we
1: can get each parameter, say, within a factor of four, maybe even a factor of two, and that allows us to estimate a distribution over these models. And we can ask within each model, when do we meet aliens? And so there's a distribution here, but roughly a billion years is when we would meet aliens. Only, of course, conditional on our heading out to meet them. If we wait here to meet them, then it would take twice as long because, of course, you know we can cut down the speed if we're traveling and they're traveling at the same time. Uh, but, of course, we have to last that long. So we, we would have to become either loud
0: or very long lasting, quiet civilization in order to meet the elites. What do you think is most likely that we, in what mode are we most likely to survive by being quiet and long lasting or by expanding outward? Unfortunately, I'd say the most likely scenario is we don't survive. <laughs> that is,
1: <laughs> most likely we'll be quiet and most likely we won't survive as quiet. And that would be the most likely Outcome for our civilization. It's not the outcome I'd prefer, but it has to be the one I'd guess. Uh, So this model I've been talking about tells us the distribution of loud aliens in, in space. It says, for example, they appear roughly once per million galaxies, and we meet them in a billion years. But this is only the distribution of the loud ones. Now, there's a ratio, say, between quiet and loud, and that ratio is important for two things. One is how close is the nearest quiet, If there are a million quiet per loud and they appear once per million galaxies, why then there might be one quiet per galaxy and then that suggests the nearest quiet might be pretty close. But the other thing this ratio tells us is our chance of becoming loud. We're now quiet and if only one in a million becomes loud then we only have a one in a million chance to become loud, which is not a very good chance. So, you know, I could believe Optimistically, maybe this ratio goes down to 1 in 10. And then there's only 10 quiet per loud, but that still only gives us a 10% chance. And what determines this ratio? Well, it's all the different paths the civilization could take and what paths it does take and which of those paths result in anyone leaving. So the remarkable fact about interstellar colonization is that it only takes one colony ship leaving the solar system that successfully heads out and lands somewhere and starts another colony to end the isolation and the quietness of our civilization. One colony ship could make all the difference. And so to prevent our becoming loud requires that our descendants basically prevent that one colony ship from ever happening for as long as our civilization lasts. So, if our civilization lasts for a billion years, then every year for the next
0: billion years, they have to prevent any colony ships from leaving. That seems like a very difficult task. So, so why? Given that you just said that, why do you believe that humanity will will stay quiet? Will we succeed in preventing anyone from venturing into the universe? So, as I said, over the last century or so, we've been slowly
1: accumulating a stronger world community, and. Lagging behind that, but coming along will be a stronger world governance. We like that. humans like this world community. It takes us back to our forager era of making decisions together and not allowing rampant competition to determine what happens. We will get slowly better at enforcing the wishes of this world community and world government. Surveillance will get stronger. Detection will get stronger. um, you know, social conformity pressures will get stronger we will just get better at managing this strong world government and the strong world community. And I fear and expect that it will rot. So systems today that like large software systems, even relatively small ones, all consistently rot and pretty much all organisms consistently rot. What do you you mean by rot here? So in software, the, the sign of rot is that as you change a software system, to make it uh, adapt to changing conditions, adding features, changing the hardware, changing customer desires. As you change software systems, the changes you make tend to create more interdependencies. They tend to make the system less modular. and By making it less modular, they make it harder to usefully change. So over time it becomes more fragile, more interdependent and harder to change. And in fact, Pretty much all large software systems are thrown away and replaced wholesale from scratch periodically. That's just the, our world of software, and most people don't know that about software. But it's parallel to, say, biology, which you know, produces long-term evolution and progress by having many organisms created that rot over
0: time and then die and then be replaced by new organisms. A, f- a future uh, human world government would also rot in a, in a way. And, and when you say that, uh, the analogy here is supposed to to be that uh, it becomes less effective. Uh, and, and Even today in, say, the United States, we've had one of the
1: longest-lived governments on the earth, and therefore our government systems are one of the longest-lived systems on earth. And so if you look at the slow accumulation of government agencies and laws and rules, I think we already see rot. We already see that these rules are getting longer and more interdependent and allowing less change. Uh, and that's just the sort of thing you should expect to see over these long timescales.
0: And other nations haven't suffered as much because their systems are newer. Do you think that such an integrated uh, future for the world would prevent anyone from leaving and thereby would, would keep us as a quiet civilization? Well, there's two parts to the story. One is that they would want to
1: prevent people from leaving. (laughs) And the other is that they would slowly accumulate more complexity in the systems, which would include more regulation and more obstacles and tentacles sort of controlling innovation and change such that they would be better able to prevent this interstellar colonization. That is an interstellar colony will have to build a big ship somewhere fill it, you know, create a launcher of some sort to support it and it's not small and it would be noticeable and it would require supporting technologies to be developed. And so that would give the
0: rest of the civilization plenty of warning to decide if they approved. If we imagine that we could become more and more technologically advanced wouldn't it become easier and easier to build a spaceship and uh, venture into the universe? And so you would, if, it's, if spaceship technology is democratized in a sense, wouldn't there be some group somewhere who managed to uh, venture into the universe?
1: Yes, if you imagine like holding surveillance and control constant, While you increase local abilities and lower the local cost of doing something and raise the total size of the economy, then yes, you have to expect an increasing chance of any one deviation uh, allowing such a thing. But I expect that as technology improves, we will also be improving centralized control and, and and surveillance and conformity pressures, and that we will slow down our ability to innovate through the rot that such a centralized system would induce. So there's a race here, you see, between our technology improving and innovating and the slowly accumulating rot of a world community and government that will prevent change. So already we are seeing in the last you know, half century, many areas of technology where innovation has been slowed greatly or even stopped because the world community doesn't like it, say nuclear power. Nuclear power at a, at a physical level has enormous potential. And, you know, in before nuclear power started, and many science fiction people imagined quite reasonably that when we had it, we would use it and they could calculate how much we would get out of using it. The visions of a, you know, vast technological advanced future that people were imagining in, say, 1930, that wasn't crazy imagination. That was reasonable, given the assumption that when we had nuclear power, we would use it. We have chosen not to use nuclear power by basically heavily regulating it and preventing anyone from
0: using it. And we are going to do that with more and more kinds of technology. This is your most likely scenario for the future. But what if we actually manage to spread into the universe? If we meet another alien civilization in a billion years, as we mentioned before, can we say anything about which civilization, whether humanity will be most adva- more advanced or whether the alien civilization we meet will be more advanced? So I think it's pretty certain that within, say, a billion years, we and
1: they will have just asymptoted with technology. We will all just know all of the technology, (laughs) at least all the simple physical technology. We will, neither side would have a technological edge. But they may well be organized differently. And maybe their different form of organization would make a difficult for us to understand them and maybe even to strategize in the light of them. And so I think they will be very interested to learn about each other in order to see how they're organized and what sort of social and organizational technologies they've adopted and how far they've gotten with them. So the first thing that will happen, of course, is that we would start to expand, right? And then once we started to expand... We would lose that internal coherence we would lose the central control and then we would have a lot of competition and selection there would be wars there would be fierce competition that you know would have destructive side effects and our descendants would then evolve to become different and so the first era here after the era of global coordination and global harmony and all singing kumbaya singing standing on the mountain is that we spread out and compete and change And that would be somewhat wrenching, uh, and it could happen very rapidly. Um, And then once we had that, we would then continue to improve our technology, but now in a world of competition and selection. And then we would asymptote with technology, perhaps within, say, a million years or 10 million years. And then we would keep expanding within whatever degree of coordination we could manage to achieve at a local level, given this larger scale competition. But then another important thing would happen before we met other loud aliens is that we would meet quiet aliens or their ruins. And that would be the main data that we would have about the loud ones. We would know about our history, and we would wonder about the history of the loud aliens we might meet and the main data we would get is the other quiet alien civilizations we might come across and say get signals from a distance about when they're still active or the ruins of them when we finally physically came across where they had been and we would be extremely interested (laughs) in whatever information we could glean out of the quiet ones and for example if
0: the ratio is a thousand to one then we expect to see a thousand of them before we get to the nearest loud one And maybe we could learn something about how they never expanded, maybe how they came to destroy themselves. And we could learn something that that we could avoid doing there. And then for each one, we'd say, well, if this one had become grabby, had it become
1: loud, how would that have happened? And what would they have become like, perhaps? We'd be trying to guess for each one of them what a grabby version of them would look like. And that would be our best guess about the actual grabby ones that we'd meet.
0: What if we looked up uh, into the sky uh, tomorrow and discovered what looks to us to be a grabby alien civilization? What would this mean? Well, that would mean that
1: there was some signature of them that was subtler than I'm expecting. That is, when they change their volumes, it's less of a change than I was expecting, but it's still perhaps a noticeable one. So we figure out so sort of the right frequency and the right sort of structures to be looking for, and we go, "Aha!" look at that sphere, it's very different from the stuff around it, right? So we'd we'd have identified a gravity alien civilization, and we could then immediately estimate how long till they get here. We could look at the speed at which they're expanding and see how far away they are, and we'd know our deadline, when, when they would get here, and then when we would meet them if we headed out to meet them. And... Uh, you know most likely then this would mean they were expanding slower than I had thought when I assumed that we there are no none in the sky, and of course if we see one we 'll probably see more if we look in other directions, and we would now estimate the say the most f- rapid expansion speed might be a tenth of the speed of light or even a twentieth right we would we would know that number, and we would then know when we would meet them, and we would of course, you know have our whole future perception of our our future changed right we would know either we choose to stay quiet and wait till they get here at which we point we will be at their mercy or we will choose to become grabby and go out and meet them halfway and we will know that that can only be done at a certain speed there's it's just not possible to go faster than whatever speed we're seeing because that's probably the fastest possible and we would of course want to look at them and get some sense of what they're like internally because that's Predicting our future—that is, whatever they seem to be like inside—is what we're going to become like. And so, it's like looking in a time machine.
0: We would be looking at our future by looking at their structures and their patterns. But on your model, this would be very unlikely. We would, we would, if we saw some civilization, we would see it long in advance, and we we would see it by now. It wouldn't. We wouldn't simply tomorrow by some. Uh, better uh, technology, see something that, that we hadn't seen before. It's not so much on our model. It's on my
1: judgment that most likely whatever changes they would make would be pretty visible. Mm-hmm. Now, I could just be wrong about that, but that's not so much from the model. It's just from this judgment that most likely a civilization that had say, been in some space for 100 million years, <laughs> you know, changing things to its heart's content, those changes would be pretty noticeable. That's what I've been presuming, but I could just be wrong about that.
0: Yeah. So your judgment here is that <laughs> the what's the alternative scenario? It is that that an alien civilization would uh, control a region of space, but not do anything that's visible to us. So maybe maybe what they're doing is is on a very small scale or. Is on some some physical feat, some physical feature that we don't understand that they're changing. It it would be on a scale of like many galaxies.
1: Like there'd be a sphere that covered you know a thousand or a million galaxies Mm. out there. So they would have moved across a large scale, but somehow they wouldn't be changing these galaxies very much. (laughs) Somehow they'd be leaving the stars alone. Say, so maybe the idea there's look, there's something between the stars that's much more useful than the stars. And once you've confined those things, who cares about stars? And You know, just ignore the stars because you've got all this other great stuff to work with. you know. And there, there'd be all this other stuff we don't even know about. So once we saw that, we say, hey, that other stuff might be around here too. We should go find that stuff around here. What's all this great stuff they could use that isn't stars? Because they're apparently doing stuff and they don't even care about the stars. Well, maybe
0: it's a civilization that actually acts like uh, what you described uh, earlier in this interview, uh, kind of preserving the ecosystems of different planets they find in a very coordinated way. But I, 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 just, find, I just find that's, that's yeah, I just find it very it unlikely. It would
1: be implausible that all of them would look that way. So you can look at one of them, and so we might look at different ones and say, how similar are they? So the more different they are, the more scope there is for
0: each one's history and, and system of governance to have affected what they do. Okay, we, we've been talking about aliens and, and where they are and so on. Uh, is this... Can we change our actions in any way if we begin believing in the grabby aliens model? Should we do anything differently based on on this theory? Well, most people through history have thought that cosmology
1: mattered in the sense that what you think about where you are in all of space time affects how you think about yourself. It's your place in the universe. So if this is true, we have to change our perception of our place in the universe. As, you know, ancients, when they had a cosmology, it was usually full of active, interesting agents who, who had agendas and conflicts, and their stories of their cosmologies included these powerful agents and their agendas and their conflicts. Lately, when we scientifically advanced humans have told the story of our cosmology, it's kind of boring in the sense that it's all dead. There's just these particles flying around and these gases swirling and they swirl and they fly and they glow and they explode. And that's the cosmology we're in. It's a dead cosmology that's been dead so far. And in the usual story, we'll be dead forever, except for this one little sliver where we are, which hardly matters. If aliens are right now filling half the universe and changing things dramatically and in another billion years we'll fill it all, then cosmology is a pretty different story. It's full of active agents with agendas and we could be one of those agents and take our
0: place among them if we so choose. And that becomes the new cosmology. And it would mean that we are much less important in some a cosmic uh, sense than we might otherwise have thought. If we thought, thought we were alone in the universe, then there, at least on some moral theories, we could have a a duty to to uh, survive and expand and flourish uh, in the universe. But if the universe is already filled with uh, alien civilizations, maybe maybe our survival is less important in some in some sense. Well, I mean, the the thing before was that people had an unbounded estimate of how much we could matter.
1: (laughs) However much it was, it could be even bigger than that. And in this case, it would be bounded. Now, it's still pretty big. That is, our choice to be quiet or loud would basically affect the nearest million galaxies for the next billion years. (laughs) And that's all. (laughs) That's that's a lot. (laughs) the nearest billion galaxies <laughs> for the nearest billion years. It's, it's a lot. A lot's at stake there. So I think it isn't like, oh, now we don't <laughs> matter anymore. It's just not infinite anymore. It's it's a bounded amount that we matter.
0: But it's a lot. And it changes our <laughs> self-perception, perhaps. Um, in well, So it's not just like there's this volume that will just stay dead and empty
1: unless we make it alive. That's one of the things at stake. But another thing is at stake is that when we finally meet the aliens a billion years from now, that will just be the beginning of another era that might last 100 billion years, wherein we and these other alien civilizations will be part of a universe-wide community of aliens. And this, in this community, we will interact. And we will each learn about each other. And then we'll each have to decide which things about each other are we impressed by and want to emulate. That is, we will be culturally influenced by each other. And therefore, we could each aspire to be worthy of emulation in some interesting way not in all ways but we could hope that our the universe will have descendants of us not just because we control some region of space that we defend but that because we have something of value that others res- recognize as
0: having value and that they take it on and spread it do you think that in a billion years the notions we're talking about now will will make sense so th- does it make sense for as, can, can we even talk about uh, one, one enormously advanced civilization admiring an, another uh, enormously advanced civilization? Do, do you think we risk kind of extrapolating our concepts too far here? This is the job of a theorist to, <laughs> to basically identify our
1: strongest, most powerful theories and to judge their robustness, to judge how wide a range of circumstances they plausibly apply to. We, we have the same task with physics. You could say we only know the physics of the universe we're in, and in the future they will, you know, explore other physical possibilities, and therefore we have no concept of the future physics. And therefore we can't even talk about the volume of space they'll be in or the time it'll be till meet them. And none of that will be meaningless because our concepts are meaningless. That, that seems to me to go too far. I think I think the concept of space, for example, and time are both going to be robust concepts that last for a long time. <laughs> the li- s- speed of light limit on travel, I think, is robust, and that will project. And then if I look at social and biology and I say, what are the most robust concepts, it seems to me selection and reproduction are pretty robust concepts, and they will last. So I can talk in terms of the future in terms of selection and reproduction, and that's what I'm trying to you know, use those concepts here we will spread out and then we'll interact and there will be cultural selection among that mix and some things some elements will reproduce and others won't and we can we can aspire to have our elements reproduce
0: robin thank you this has been extremely interesting this has been great that's it for this episode on the next episode i talk with robin about the potential dangers of ai development and why Robin is skeptical of such scenarios.